You know, we say every Sunday that if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those on the pew rack and take it home with you, and it'll be yours. It's your Bible. Well, Ethan came home with one of those Bibles a few weeks ago, uh, and I said, what are you doing with that? And well, apparently, you know, he's heard me say it enough. He thought, well, everybody else can have one. Why can't I have one? <laughs> So if you see him wandering the halls with one of the pew Bibles, that is exactly why. Um, thankful he's listening, I guess. You know, you look at the book of Revelation, which is what we've been going through, and you look at the world today, and it's easy to ask these two questions that are on the screen. Where is the peace? Where is the justice? We can see it in the world. We can see it in our own lives. God, where is the peace? Why don't I have peace? God, why isn't there peace in the world. God, why isn't there justice? Why is there so much injustice everywhere we look? When will it stop? When will we find that peace? I had somebody in my office um, some months back ask that question. When will everything calm down? When will everything get back to, to being easy? First thing I said was that the things were never easy. I said, and the only time that's going to happen is in the end. <laughs> It's when heaven comes. Uh, because Jesus promised that in this world you will have trouble. And actually when Jesus said that in John chapter 16, the word that's translated trouble is the word tribulation. Which we're actually going to be looking at a little bit of that today. Tribulation, the great tribulation. Jesus said in this world you will have tribulation. You will have great trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. So today we're going to be looking, starting in Revelation Chapter 6, Revelation chapter 6, if you're using one of the Bibles from the pew rack, it's on page 1031, Revelation chapter 6. You know, we've been looking at this for a few weeks now. I took a break last week for Mother's Day, uh, but Revelation has been written down by John the Apostle, the last of the 12 disciples alive. He's been exiled to this island, this prison island. Um, because Rome had tried to kill him for preaching the gospel. And uh, God supernaturally allowed him to survive. And so Rome transferred him to this prison island. And Jesus showed up, John being on this prison island. And Jesus gave him a vision. And said, I'm going to give you uh, some stuff about the future, about the end times. And I want you to write it all down. That's what Jesus told John. And so he gives him a message for the Christians. And that's uh, Revelations chapters uh, 2 and 3. And then he takes John and gives him a vision of the end times. Um, what we looked at two weeks ago in John, uh, Revelation 4 and 5 was a vision. The first thing John saw was the throne room of God. And he talked about how amazing that was, how miraculous it was. He saw the throne of God with God on it. He saw these four angel living creature things flying around the throne of God, praising him constantly. He saw 24 thrones around God's throne with elders on it, also praising God. And then he saw in God's hand a scroll that was unable to be opened. He saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, come out, take the scroll from God, and then everyone praised Jesus. And now what we're going to begin to look at today is what happens when Jesus takes this scroll and begins to open the seals that are on it. This scroll is sealed with seven different seals. And the way 
we believe this particular scroll worked in, in ancient times. Scrolls were sealed in different ways. It could have been a, a whole scroll with seven seals across the top, but the way that we read what happens here in chapter 6 is it was a scroll that was sealed with one on the outside. You would open it, and then there was another seal to seal the next section. You would open that section, open it again. There's another seal to seal the next section. Um, that's what we're going to see is going on here in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is popped open by Jesus. And then a loud voice yells out, come, and out comes a, a, a guy riding on a horse, a, a white horse, a white horse of victory, a white horse of, of uh, uh, celebration, so to speak. And this rider has a bow, as in archery, bow and arrows. But notice the rider is given a bow, but no arrows. And he's given a commission to conquer everywhere he turns. But he's given a commission to conquer without arrows to his bow. He's given the bow as a symbol of warfare, as a symbol of power, but he's not given the ammunition. But he's sent out there to conquer. There's many people who believe, many of the commentators I read, that this guy, they believe, is the Antichrist. Now, Antichrist isn't mentioned in Revelation, in that phrasing. It's in other parts of Scripture. Um, but coming out to conquer with a bow but without arrows... They believe he's going to conquer through political prowess and, and take over in different areas like that. Uh, but this rider on this horse is given permission to basically take over the world. Uh, verse 3. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that the people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. A couple things I want to point out about this guy. So, second seal's popped. Another voice come. Out comes a rider on a bright red horse. Now, the bright red is very interesting. I mean, we've seen animals with red hair before. I've never seen, like, a bright red animal that hadn't been, had its hair dyed of that nature or whatever. But um, the imagery of the bright red horse is almost as though it's blood. And this rider's given a great sword, but notice also, as we're going to see in a minute, this rider, even though he's given a sword, he's not given permission to kill. But also notice, he is given his authority. He doesn't have any authority, just like the first rider and just like the two that are coming up. They don't have authority in and of themselves. Everything they receive, they receive from God. Without God's permission, they're not allowed to do anything. And this rider, even though he's given a sword, is not permitted to kill. The thing that he's permitted to do is to take peace from the earth. Now imagine that. If all the peace from the hearts of people around the world is taken, there's going to be great war, wouldn't you imagine? Not that there isn't already great war everywhere. But if there is no peace, all that, there, all that remains is fighting. All that remains is war. So even though he is not going to kill, he doesn't have to. Simply by removing the peace, lots of devastation is going to take place. 
Verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now this voice comes out. Now, we don't really know why, but it's really interesting to me. When the first two seals are popped, the voice that says, come to the horse, is one of the living creatures, one of the angels. But this voice, it says in uh, verse 5, I heard, oh, no, it says the third living creature is the next voice, uh, say, come. And so, but the, the voice says, a quart of wheat for denarius. Denarius was about what you would make in a day's worth of work. And a quart was about one adult person's ration, how much they could eat in a day. And so they're saying, if you want to buy wheat, you only have enough money to buy the food. And that would feed you for the day. You don't have enough money to feed your animal, getting you to and from work. You don't have enough money for anything else. Uh, but if you have a family, you don't have enough food or money to provide the food for the whole family. So he says, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Barley was cheaper. Barley was more widespread. Uh, it was... It was um, uh, uh, not as high quality of the, as the wheat was back then. Uh, and so he's saying, this is how much it's going to cost for this stuff, but the oil and the wine is not going to be any more expensive. Now, I'll give you an idea of how much this is. Uh, this was an exorbitant price, like 11 to 16 times the normal price. It would be the modern equivalent of $60 for a gallon of milk. I'd be saying, we're not drinking milk. <laughs> we're not drinking any milk. Uh, and so he said, you've got to pay this, so, but the, the oil and the wine are going to stay the same price. So there's going to be some kind of economic upheaval, maybe some kind of famine uh, that's going to take place. But it's not, even though it's going to be bad, it's not going to be completely uh, devastating. It's going to affect a lot of stuff, but not everything. Uh, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth Living creatures say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so out comes the fourth rider called Death on a pale horse. Pale horse like a dead person. And Hades followed him. So death, the means, Hades, the place, uh, given authority over a, a quarter of the earth to kill. Kill with sword, killed with famine. Pestilence is like, like a pandemic. I mean, it's like widespread contagious disease. And by wild beasts coming up on the earth, killing indiscriminately. Now, you say, that, fourth of the earth, that's a lot of people. I mean, like today, that's like two billion people. But it's not like they had, especially back then, but today if 2 billion people died all of a sudden, it'd be big news. It'd be everywhere. Uh, but each one of these things, it's not like it's one massive wave of dying. You've got wars here and here and here and here. And if you add up all of those deaths, and then you've got the famine here, 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 and here, and you add up all of those deaths, then you've got all the disease, and you add up the deaths from all that, you add up all the deaths from all the animals, it would add up to a quarter of the people dying. And so any one of those things would be uh, uh, 
a terrible, terrible deal. But it's not till you add them all up that you get this number. And only here is the writer given the authority to kill, to go out and do the killing, to go out and, and bring this devastation um, on the earth. Uh, verse 9. When I opened the fifth seal, or when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. And so now here in the throne room of God, God's presence, we have an altar. And we have the souls of the people who died during this period of time because they were Christians, because they were followers of Christ, and they were leading people to Christ. And so they're there under the altar. Now, I mean, this could be you know, a place of security, a place of honor. Um, they offered their lives for the Lord, and so they're associated with the altar. And so they're there in the throne room of God with the altar, and they speak. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now you read that, and it's, it's easy to, you know, relate to that. Like, God, how, how, how long until you get back the people who killed us? How long until you bring revenge on those who took us out? But that's not really what they're asking here. Notice right off the bat, they're praising God. O sovereign Lord, holy and true. They're in God's presence. And so if they are in God's presence, they would not have vengeful hearts in the same way we do here. They're not necessarily asking for revenge. They're asking how long until justice comes. How long, God, until you fulfill your character, you fulfill your nature, and bring justice and the end. Because they know justice isn't going to be completely fulfilled until the end. As we're going to see as we continue on to the book of Revelation. Complete and absolute justice will come. And so that's what they're asking. They're praising God by asking how long until you reveal the fullness of your nature. And they're given an answer. Uh, before they're given an answer though, they're given uh, something to wear. Verse 11. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're each given a white robe, white robe of victory, and uh, they're told just to wait. They're told to wait until everybody else who has yet to fulfill their purpose fulfills their purpose. Just wait until the end comes. They're told it's not the end yet. Just wait. Similar to what we're told today. We don't know when the end's going to come. We're just told it's coming. So we need to anticipate it. Act like it could be any day. Wake up saying it could be today. And live like it could be today. And so these believers, these martyrs, are told just rest for a little while. And then the end will come. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a, uh, vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So all of the natural order is experiencing great 
upheaval. Uh, everything they'd come to rely on um, is, is kind of flipped on its head here. Uh, and that is a sign of the end when all of the normalcy disappears. It's a sign of the end. Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Now, seven different kinds of people are listed here. Kings, great ones, generals, rich, powerful, slave, free. And then it says everyone. So everyone. I mean, this is every single person, from the lowest to the greatest, no matter what culture classifies a person, every single person will recognize what's going on. They're going to hide themselves because of how crazy things are going to get. And they're going to, it just boggles my mind, that they recognize God's hand, Jesus' hand, in the midst of this craziness. But they refuse to turn to him. You see, the whole reason Jesus, God, is going through all of this for his glory is to help point people to salvation, saying, the end is coming. It's time to turn. He, he's, even though the end is, is, is getting near, he's still giving people an opportunity to get saved. He, he's making it more obvious than it already is and giving people an opportunity to get saved. He's saying the, the clock is ticking. Get saved right now. You're running out of time. Hurry up. Let's get it done. Get saved. But the people are refusing. They would rather cling to their own personal beliefs and their lives than experience the freedom of salvation. Experience the freedom that Jesus offers, the protection that he offers. They said, uh, calling to the mountains and the north, follow us, hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb, which is a very interesting phrase, that a lamb would have wrath, but they're talking about Jesus. Uh, for the great day of wrath has come, the judgment day. And who can stand in the faith? They recognize the power of God. Who can stand against God? But we're not going to follow him. That's what they're going to say. And we're going to see in, throughout the book of Revelation, this happens time and time again. They recognize God's power. They recognize the hand of Jesus. But most of them are not going to turn to him. Most of them are going to continue to follow their own way. Continue to do what they want to do. Is that, I mean, we see this today. We don't need, you know, the very end of times, the apocalypse to come to recognize this. We see people today refusing to acknowledge the truth that is out there, refusing to acknowledge God's hand and God's strength. Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1. Uh, but these people are refusing to follow after God. Look at chapter 7. And chapter 7 of Revelation, just to give you preparation, has been called one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to interpret in all of the book of Revelation. So let's dive in. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fun. I'm sure some of you will disagree with me, but we're, we're going to go in anyway. Uh, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth 
or the seer against any tree. Now, the four corners of the earth, now, they didn't believe the earth was square. Uh, that's just a common, that's an idiom, that's a common phrase. People even use that phrase today, the four corners of the earth. It just means uh, everywhere. They're standing at the four corners. They're, they're out there, are ready to bring whatever they're going to bring on the whole earth. Most commentators believe, uh, the, uh, holding back the four winds, these are the four riders from chapter 6. So those riders who have come out haven't brought their judgments on the earth yet. Um, they're getting ready to do that. But they're holding it back for a very specific reason. Verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, before we get into what comes next, there's some very important things in that verse. Uh, those four angels, the four riders, are told not to do anything until the servants of God are sealed. Sealed. Sealed with something. I mean, it doesn't tell us what they're sealed with. Uh, Revelation chapter 14 says, believers are sealed with the name of God. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 calls the Holy Spirit the seal of God. So this could be talking about, you know, some sort of physical representation. Most likely it is a spiritual representation of God in their lives. Sealed with the Holy Spirit seems to me the most likely explanation here. Uh, people who follow Jesus are going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit as we have the Holy Spirit as a, a promise of what is to come. And uh, they will be protected. Protected. The imagery is protected from some of these judgments that are about to befall the earth. In the same way, the Israelites were protected from many of the ten plagues that fell on Egypt uh, back in the book of Exodus. He says, we're going to seal them. But the thing I really want to point out before we get into these next five verses is at the end of that verse 3, uh, when he says, Do not harm the earth or the sea uh, or the trees until we have sealed the servants, the servants of God. That phrase, the servants of our God, this is not specifying a specific group of servants. What it, by saying that, he's specifying all the servants, the servants of God, all of them, until we seal all of the servants. And then look at what he says next. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. Anybody ever heard that number associated with the book of Revelation? 144,000? Or associated with something else? Well, let's look at it. He said they were sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's interesting, right? Remember, he just said the servants of our God are going to be sealed, as though he's saying all of them. And now he's saying 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he lists some tribes here. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, there's some very odd things in this tribe list. Um, first off, the fact that every tribe listed here has the exact same number of people listed. Because in every tribe list you have in the Old Testament, it's never the same number. 
Some tribes are massive. Some tribes are tiny. No tribe has the same number. Not only that, the list itself is odd. There are 20 tribe lists in the Old Testament. 18 of them have different orders than all of the rest. None of them have the same order. But they usually all have the same beginning. Reuben was the first one. Reuben's not listed first here, though. Judah's listed first. Judah's not the first born, but he's listed first in this list. Most commentators believe that's because the Messiah, Jesus, comes from the tribe of Judah. Doesn't specify that, but that's what we believe. But some other odd things in this list. The tribe of Dan isn't listed here. Y'all looking, is it there? The tribe of Dan. Oh, I guess not. It's not there. We don't know why. There's lots of speculation. Some people say, well, Dan fell into great idolatry in the Old Testament. The tribe of Dan did. But so did every other tribe of Israel. They all fell into idolatry. That's why they were exiled. So it wasn't just Dan who was bad. They were all bad. So why isn't Dan included there? But not only that, the tribe of Levi is included. Levi is never included in the tribe list in the Old Testament, ever. Levi's always left out because Levi's special. The Levites had a special job, and so they weren't included in the land allocation like the rest of them. So Levi's included. And Joseph is included in the list. You say, well, Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob. Of course he is. Well, what ended up happening is Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were included instead of Joseph. But look at the list. Manasseh's there, but Ephraim isn't. So why in the world would Ephraim be left off and Manasseh included and then Joseph be included when he's never included elsewhere. Like, what, what is going on with this list? Nobody really knows why there's such abnormalities in this list. Why it doesn't match up to some of the other lists, like including Levi or including Joseph, including Manasseh, but not Ephraim. Why Judah's first. Um, why some of these things are here. I mean, I think it's to a Jew reading that, there would be some pause there, saying, wait, wait a minute, that doesn't really compute. <laughs> uh, that's not really making much sense why, why this list is the way it is. There's no Dan, I, I, I don't, I'm not really getting this. But I want to point out several things. Um, some people believe, uh, I'll point out that first, some people believe that this is literal, that there will literally be exactly 144,000 Jews who get saved at the end. And those will be the ones of the Jews who get saved at the end who go to heaven. Um, they believe that. Uh, and there's quite a few people who believe that. Um, however, and I'll explain why I believe different than that. Uh, we have to be extremely careful when we interpret, interpret Scripture. Um, we need to interpret scripture in the same way all the way throughout. I tend to interpret scripture literally, unless it's obviously figurative language, like prophecy. You'll notice it all throughout the Old Testament. You'll notice it in the words of Jesus when he prophesies. Prophecy is figurative language. And revelation is all prophecy. And the problem becomes when we jump back and forth from figurative interpretation to literal interpretation, when one of those interpret 
interpretive, interpretative formats doesn't fit what we believe. When we say, like, take this for instance, well, I believe that's literal, so I'm going to jump back from figurative to literal here, but then I'm about to jump back to figurative in the next section. We can't jump back and forth like that, willy-nilly, on our own minds. We've got to interpret it all the same. Otherwise, we become the interpreter of Scripture rather than Scripture interpreting Scripture. And I don't know how your mind works. My mind is all kinds of flawed and sinful. I know some of you, so I know some of your minds are flawed and sinful too. And I don't want how I view Scripture to be dependent upon my sinful brain. And so I need to look at it in a way that God lays out. And so if I'm going to look at it as, as, you know, figurative in how these seals are broken, and is Jesus actually a lamb in the throne room, or is he Jesus, the lamb of God, and it's a title, you know, I've got to interpret it all the same. And so I believe this is figurative. I believe that you have 12 tribes listed here. And how many people from each tribe? 12,000. 12 twelves. And as we're going to notice throughout Revelation, numbers are very important. We've already seen the number seven be used over and over and over again. The number 12 is also used over and over and over again. You have two sets of 12 in the throne room of God and the two sets of elders. You have 24 elders there. Could be two sets of 12, could be 24 uh, as one unit either way. You Here you have 12 twelves. And the 12,000 from each tribe... Uh, you know, it is a, you know, divisible by a thousand, which is also significant. But uh, the, the important thing is the 12 twelves add up to 144,000. Um, and so that, to me, signifies completeness, wholeness, absolute, everybody. He just said in verse 3, we're going to seal these servants of God, all of them. And then he lifts out 12 twelves in the next verses. So to me, that says the complete number of people who will be saved are going to be sealed. The complete number of those saved will be sealed. Because it's not just the Jews who get sealed. Everybody gets sealed, as we're going to see later on. Every Christian gets sealed. Every one of them. And we know from Scripture as well, uh, there are uh, 14 different New Testament references. 14 where Christians are referred to with Jewish language, either as the 12 tribes or... Uh, uh, Israel itself. Christians are called 14 different times in the New Testament. Israel or the 12 tribes. James chapter 1 uses that language, calls Christians the 12 tribes. In Romans chapter 2 and in Galatians chapter 6, Paul calls Christians the real Jews, followers of Christ. The Israel of God is his phrase. Hebrews chapter 8 says the first covenant was made obsolete. When Jesus brought the new covenant, no longer valid is what that word means, obsolete. So why, in my mind, why would physical Jews be referred to here in Revelation if, if Scripture repeatedly speaks of the covenant of salvation through faith rather than ancestry? And so to me, this 1212s, he's talking about the complete number of followers of Christ. 
But you're welcome to disagree with me all you want. That doesn't bother me. There are some very, very genius level, smart Bible guys who I disagree with on several sections of Revelation. I tend to believe we're all going to get to heaven one day and all of us are going to say, oh, that's what it meant. My salvation isn't dependent upon Revelation chapter 7. My salvation is dependent upon Jesus dying and raising from the dead. And so we can be a part of the same church and disagree on this because our salvation doesn't rest in this. It rests in Jesus dying and raising from the dead. As many people are in this room right now, I get, as many people in the room and watching online, there are that many, if not more, varying views on the book of Revelation. We can differ. It's fine. You say, I can't differ with anybody. Well, you're going to have a hard time living. <laughs> it's okay to not agree on, on some of these things. As long as we agree about the gospel, we're okay. Right? And so you may disagree with me on this section. That's totally fine. I may disagree with myself in a few years. Let's just take what it says. I mean, I, I told you what some people believe. I told you what I believe and why I believe it. And uh, we'll see uh, when we get to heaven what exactly uh, it, it, the Jesus is talking about with this section here. But look at verse 9. So this is what John saw. And then it says, after this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. So John, this is still the same vision he has. Um, the book of Revelation, notice it's the book of Revelation, if you look at the top of your page, there's no S on the end of that, it's not Revelations, uh, because it's just one vision John has, it's one Revelation. And so John had, you know, he, he just saw the, the, the angel talk about the ceiling of the 144,000. And he says, after this, I looked. He didn't say, I went back up to heaven the next day and had another vision. It's still a part of the same vision. He says, after this, I looked. And he sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation standing before the throne. Now notice, too, this great multitudes from every nation, all the tribes, all the peoples, all the languages, uh, these, are, these are believers who came out of the tribulation, who came out of the judgment period we're going to read about. We're going to see this throughout, we're gonna, as we're going to notice, uh, throughout Revelation, there's going to be time jumps. Sometimes it's going to be a jump to the future, sometimes it's going to be a jump to the past, um, and we just got to roll with it. Um, but here before the throne, these are all the people who got saved during this period of great persecution and difficulty. But notice, it's from all the tribes in the world, all the peoples of the world, all the nations of the world. And to me, again, this is just, in my, again, brain, my, my broken brain, uh, confirmation that that section before is talking about all Christians. Because why would all nations be included in this section if all the Jews were just included in the last section? Wouldn't it say all the nations except the Jews, 144,000 that were already sealed? To me, this says... The 144,000, the complete number, the 12 12s, this is that group here, every nation in the throne of God, before the throne of God, in his presence there. Verse 10, they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So they're praising God. And all the angels, so all the angels show up. 
They're standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fall on their faces before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So all the Christians who came out of the tribulation and the difficulty and, 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 and the persecution are praising God. Uh, then all of the angels, all of God's angels show up and they put an amen on what the Christians are praising God with. And notice they praise him for a specific number of attributes. How many, how many things do you think they're praising him for? Seven. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Seven things. Numbers are important in the book of Revelation. Uh, then one of the elders, verse 13, addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. So those who uh, uh, became Christians during that period, who, who made it through to the end of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this is how we know it's a time jump. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. At the beginning of Revelation chapter 7, none of the judgments happened yet. Remember, all of the angels that were bringing the judgment from the popping of the first four seals, the riders on the horses, they weren't allowed to go and bring judgment yet in the beginning of Revelation 7. And now we get a jump forward to the end where this elder is telling John, these are all the Christians who made it through all the judgments here before God praising. They have washed their robes. They are saved. They are pure in the presence of God. Verse 15. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. I love that imagery, right? The lamb will be the shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So they were before the throne. To be before the throne is to be in the immediate presence of the one on the throne. And he will shelter them. There in verse 15 it says that. He will shelter them with his presence. That's the idea of bringing them into the comfort and protection of his home. Bringing him into the comfort and protection of where he is. So he will shelter them. He will take care of them, provide for them, protect them there in his throne. But also notice there in verse 15, it says these believers, these followers of Jesus, they will serve him day and night in his temple. They will serve him, serve him. Uh, worship him through, through, through a dedicated life of service. They will serve him day and night. They will continually be focused on Jesus in everything they do. And they will serve him. And being in his presence, serving him, those next couple verses, they will hunger no more, they will, they will thirst no more, they will have every need met. Sun won't strike them, scorching heat won't strike them. Any potential eternal threat will be wiped out. They will be protected from it. The lamb will be the shepherd. He will show them the way to life, guiding them to springs of living water. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Grief and pain 
will be comforted and relieved in the presence of God. He will take care of them, provide for them because they have come to Jesus. Coming to Jesus naturally leads to serving Jesus. You notice all these things that Jesus did for them followed with, followed behind them being in his presence and serving him day and night. Following Jesus naturally leads to serving Jesus. But when we serve Jesus, we need to be a full-service follower of Jesus. A full-service follower of Jesus. Not partial service. Not self-service. Christians tend to be self-service followers of Jesus. We serve Jesus when it's convenient for us. We serve Jesus on our timetable when it fits our comfort level. We serve Jesus up to a cap. And we're not ready to be a full-service follower of Jesus because that may mean, you know, giving Jesus a little more money. That may mean giving Jesus a little more of our time. That may mean not watching that TV show. That may mean giving up that subscription service. That may mean we don't continue hanging out with that friend. That may mean a change of job. Being a full-service follower of Jesus takes time, investment, it takes dedication from our hearts. It's easy to be a self-service follower of Jesus. I'll go to church when I feel like it, when I've got energy on Sunday morning, when I wasn't up late Saturday night, when it's, when it's not raining. I'll go to church when I, when I, when I, when I feel like going to church. I'll, I'll, I'll spend time with Jesus when I feel like spending time with Jesus. That's a self-service follower of Jesus. Because... A self-service follower of Jesus, every element of serving Jesus is completely dependent upon the self, how I feel in the moment. Whether I, those tacos I had for lunch messed me up and I don't feel like serving Jesus later on. But a full-service follower of Jesus follows Jesus no matter how you feel. Follows Jesus no matter how offended you are. Follows Jesus no matter where he says go. No matter who he says, you need to comfort and love. You say, Jesus, I don't want to comfort and love that person. I mean, Jesus, man, that person, they are far gone. They need to be visited by that rider on the pale horse, Jesus. I am not about to go and be a full-service follower of Jesus to that person. They are despicable, and they are terrible, and you need to just take them. Well, maybe not take them, Jesus. I'm a Christian. Don't kill them. Like, just maim them a little bit. Like... But a full-service follower of Jesus will follow Jesus irregardless. Will follow Jesus always. Early, late, when you're tired. Well, just a sneak preview of that, as long as you're on this earth, you're just going to get more and more tired. <laughs> it's just going to keep getting more and more tired until we get to heaven. I mean, imagine what sleep's going to be like in heaven. That's going to be some good sleep. That's gonna, I mean, you said we don't sleep in heaven. We don't need sleep. Sleep is for the weak. Well, if you look, though, in the Old Testament, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam, God made Adam sleep before sin entered the world. So if sleep was there before sin, I would think sleep would still be there after sin. And that's going to be some good sleep. I like sleep. It's going to be some good sleep. You wake up, feel refreshed. 
Imagine that. I mean, who, who, who remembers feeling refreshed? How, how far back do you have to go to reach that in your mind, right? That was definitely pre-kid. That was sometime way back when. I don't remember when exactly, but it was somewhere. But surely, maybe when I was a kid, like six, seven, eight years, maybe somewhere in there, I woke up feeling refreshed. Uh, but to be a full-service follower of Jesus, we follow with everything we've got. When we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we're hungry, when we're hangry, when we're, diff- when we're frustrated, we still follow Jesus. Full service, always. Always follow Jesus. Always follow Jesus. But to follow Jesus, the first thing we have to do, which we see here in the throne room of God, the first thing we have to do is come to Jesus. We got to come to him. Come to Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. And what we see there in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 7, come to him and find comfort. Come to him and find met needs. Come to him and find protection. Come to him and find guidance. Come to him and find salvation. Come to him and find his holy glory constantly before us. Just come to Jesus and find everything you need. You're not going to find it elsewhere in the world trying to put a Band-Aid when you need a surgeon. You're not going to find it in all these different areas trying to distract yourself from the truth of the matter. What you need is Jesus. So come to Jesus. Maybe today you need to come to Jesus for the first time. You've been trying to hide your pain, hide your difficulty. You've been trying to mask it with something else, some kind of addiction that's secret in the back of your mind. You've been trying to hide it with something that's just temporary relief and not permanent relief. It's not living water. You're drinking regular water, and you get thirsty again. But you need some living water that quenches that thirst so you'll never have it again. And you've got to come to Jesus And so today, if you don't know Jesus, come to him. Don't put it off. Stop delaying. Stop arguing in your mind. I'll just come to Jesus like like next week. You know, it's it's Memorial Day weekend next week. There'll be less people here. I'll come to Jesus next week. Don't put it off, man. You don't know what's going to happen between now and next week. And you know about not doing what Jesus told you to do? If he's telling you to come now, come to Jesus now, it's, it's delayed obedience, it's disobedience. If you put it off, it's still disobedience. You'll disobey then, but Jesus is telling you to do it now. Don't miss the boat. Obey now. Believe now. Come to Jesus now. Follow Jesus now. Maybe you're in the room or you're watching online and you are a Christian already. But you've been a self-service Christian when it's convenient, when it's easy. And it's time that Jesus is putting in your heart that, that, that word of saying, all right, step it up. Or maybe you, some of you remember Emerald Lagasse from like 20 years ago. Kick it up a notch. Bam, kick it up a notch. It's time to get moving with Jesus. You come to him and you hang on for dear life because he's not going to stop moving. Come to Jesus and be a full-service follower for the rest of your life. So those are the two questions today. Will you come to Jesus and will you serve him?